When I first became a Christian, life was good. Amazing friendships and a time with God was awesome. But then, darkness. I thought life was supposed to get better, brighter, easier, with blessings. But God seems so far away. I pray and it feels like my prayers hit a glass wall and bounce back unanswered. I keep hearing promises of freedom from my sin, but I keep messing up and I'm so disappointed. The simple answers don't seem so powerful, especially when someone I love is so sick. God, where are you? What do I have to do to get through this? Just tell me, are you real? The darkness seems so thick that it's almost suffocating. Man, we should have had that like three weekends from now. Wouldn't it be a great Freddy Krueger throwback for a Halloween weekend message? No, seriously though, we're talking about a topic today that uh, is something that's universal, that we really all face in our faith journey at some point. It's universal to us, and it's often referred to as this point of darkness. It's, it's sometime, sometimes referred to in Christian literature as this desert experience, or, or even this uh, more dramatic term, which I, I tend, to, tend to avoid once in a while, but even in Christian literature, it's oftentimes talked about as, as this dark night of the soul, and it's something that, that we all experience at some point at some level, and most of us, if not all of us, experience it multiple times in our life at different levels. And, 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 it, and it's this key issue to our faith. How do we face it? How do we go through it? What's God doing in that time of darkness? Is God even in it at all? And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. We've talked about that the predominant image of the Christian life in the Bible is of this quest, of this journey that we go on, of this, of this movement of compassion and passion in us that drives us to follow and do something. And there's a couple authors, uh, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick, uh, the latter or former, uh, formerly at Fuller Seminary, put together this model that describes the stages of our faith development. And it's not perfect, but, but let's take a look at it here. It just starts out in stage one by just at, at the point where we become a Christian. There's obviously stages and steps we go through before becoming even fitting in this model. But this, it talks about the life change when we experience God and how amazing that is, how it just changes the way we look at the world around us. And, and, and then we start in stage two, we begin to grow and, and start to understand our faith and the Bible is alive to us and, and the friendships that are helping us grow and understand God and experience God are so rich and wonderful we get involved in small groups, we get baptized, and, and things are going really well. And then, and then these are not always, you know, they, they don't always happen in order. Sometimes they happen sim- simultaneously. But then we get to this point where we discover serving and, and that God wants to do something through us and give back to the world around us. And there's this element of, of connection to his purpose and seeing him work in other people's lives that just starts to be amazing. But it's at this point around stage four that we end up hitting a wall if we could flip to the next size most often. It doesn't always happen here. It happens in different phases for different people, but most often it happens here. 
And the question is, how do we know if we're at the wall? What does it feel like when we're at this wall of, this wall of darkness, this place of dryness? And, and, it's, and it's simply this. Oftentimes it's initiated by a conflict or, or by a pain or by a crisis in our life. Maybe it's initiated by the death of someone close to you or a divorce or a conflict at work or a failure of a job or, or maybe it's, maybe it's uh, uh, facing your own sin for the first time and realizing how, how it's so difficult to let go of some of this stuff and be free of it. Or, or maybe it's even associated with that previous stage. It often is of this active life of serving that, that all of a sudden we get involved in serving and it's one of the first times we get so close to people in church that we realize and just can't avoid the fact that everybody around us is really so broken. And, and some of the people we've looked up to and, and respect and we, and we know are following God have, have hurt us because of their brokenness and we wrestle with that pain and that difficulty. There could be lots of reasons, but, but when we face this wall, when we stand up against this darkness, it, 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 it elicits questioning. We question ourselves. We, we question our faith. Where is God? What are you doing? We, and, and the questions out far outnumber the answers for us. And it's just this time of frustration where we don't know where God is. We, we really don't know for sure what he's doing and where he's going or how we're getting there or we don't even know when we'll be able to get there and what it looks like to be there. Regardless of what instigates it for you, when you experience this, we have a choice to either go and stand at the wall and allow God to lead us through it or we have the opportunity to run away from the wall or back up and retreat. And truth be told, many of us, myself included at times in life, have faced these walls and we've retreated. And what happens in our faith walk when we do that is, is we end up going from passionate people with, with just driven on this quest of, of compassion for others and, and passion for God to, to being people who just kind of, we, we keep going, we, we do the right thing, and we, we come to church, but it's just never the same. It's just not quite the same. And for some of us, when we've hit these walls, we've left church for a time maybe for a long time, and we've run from it because we didn't know what to do with it. Today's message is going to begin helping us learn to know what to do with these walls that every one of us face because they're walls that God brings. They're walls that he brings to bring goodness to our lives. He works through the, through the darkness, the dryness of those times to bring amazing things to our lives. But the fact of the matter is when we run from them, or when we back up from them. It only prolongs the pain. It only prolongs the disillusionment. And it makes us dull and dead inside at some point. Now, we've been talking about the premise of this, this whole series that we're in is, is the fact that we need to really know ourselves internally well in order to really also know God. Unless we deeply reflect on ourselves, unless we even understand our emotions as gifts from God, not necessarily always the voice of God, but gifts from God to drive us to Him and interact with Him in that, that, that we really can't know God without being deeply aware of ourselves. And yet this message today also illustrates for us the fact that the wall, like no other place, the place of darkness, the place of dry desert, like no other place, teaches us that we cannot worship our emotions, that they're not always right. 
You see, because when we face these times, we either have tons of emotions, and usually those emotions are, are negative, anger, frustration, uh, disillusionment, disappointment, and, and we need to figure out how to process those. Or more often than not, for many of us, when we face this point in our faith journey, we shut down. And, and we just don't feel anything. We, we don't feel God. We don't, we don't feel like we're hearing his voice. We don't see what's going on. We just become numb. And, and, and we go to church and we worship and we try to press through and understand God. But, but that only makes the frustration, the, the angst even more in us because we go and we press in, but we feel nothing. And we struggle with that. It feels like our prayers are hitting this glass ceiling and bouncing back on us. It's this dryness. It's the spiritual habits, the Bible study, the prayer, the worship that we used to do, the, the songs we used to listen to, worship songs we used to listen to while we were running. They, they just no longer have the same effect in our lives. It just, we just don't feel it anymore. And it either drives us away from God in pain and disillusionment, or if we stand there, and be faithful, not perfect, but faithful to pursue. He will bring us through into a whole new amazing depth of relationship, a sense of his love and and security and peace. In stages five and six, when we walk into them, we may do some of the same things we did in the earlier stages, but there's this this whole new depth to us. There's this this whole new joy and peace and and sense of, of God in it for us. And And in stages 5 and 6 is when we walk into what Paul said in Philippians 4.12. In Philippians 4.12, Paul says this. He says, I know what it is like to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Isn't that what we really want, to be content None of us deny the fact that life is going to be difficult at times, right? And anybody who denies that, we look at them as fairly unrealistic. We all realize that life is going to be difficult. What we really long for is to find this place of strength and peace and rest and love and acceptance in the midst of whatever situation we're in. And that's what Paul is saying he's found here. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he's found the ability to be content in God. Now, the Bible and, and literature throughout, Christian literature throughout history describe this place and, and, and in great detail as a desert, as a dark night of the soul. There's a book written by that, and people have written about this for centuries. My wife was listening to an, a podcast a, few months, a, a month or so ago by Graham Cook, one of our favorite speakers to listen to. And in it, Graham was talking about the fact that, that, uh, that he's faced these dry places, these deserts, these really dark times, many times. And he used to go into them kicking and shouting. And now he says, my prayer is actually that God would bring them to me and that I would be able to experience them because he's found so much joy and so much blessing and so much transformation on the other side of it. And, and it made me start thinking as I was preparing for this even more deeply. You know, I've, I've personally experienced this wall many times in life. 
I remember the first time even being in high school when I was wrestling with God over a sense of calling and purpose that he was trying to speak to me and I wasn't wanting to do it and, and, and that was part of what instigated this wall of darkness for me at that point. I remember uh, the, one of the most profound times that I've alluded to right after college when my, when my closest friend and roommate went through a tragic, uh, tragically was killed in an accident and, and that year at the same time that was going on there was just all this disillusioning stuff in, in Christian leaders around me that I was close to that just had set me for a a loop just going what is it God is this all there is is this all the more character we can expect and what's going on and it was just such a disillusioning time and that time for me lasted for four years but I think that it would have lasted shorter than that had I had I practiced some of the stuff we're talking about through this series I think a lot of it was just simply I kept bouncing up against the wall and running away instead of rather than rather than sitting in it and facing it and allowing God to do his work and there's been many times since then that I've, that I've also come back to the wall. And, and sometimes I come back to the wall because the reality is God has a purpose, a good purpose of shaping us in the quietness and, and in, the, in the fog of darkness. He wants to, us to see ourselves like the, like the video looking in a mirror. He wants us to see our masks. He wants to strip us of the masks. He wants us to know him in such a more beautiful and deep way in those times and bring something so good to us that he brings those times to us. And the fact of the matter is if we run away, we're going to hit that wall again. And there have been times in my life where I've run away and I've had to face the same wall. There have been times where I think I've gone halfway through the wall and God brings it back around and asks me to go all the way through. It's just one of the gifts that God brings to us, even though it doesn't seem like a gift. I mean, when you hear a topic like this and you see it advertised, you, go, you kind of go, well, I'm going to get to go to church and I'm going to get to suck rotten eggs today, right? I mean, it's just one of those topics that's not really easy to advertise, but it's a reality that we all face. And I can look back at these times, and, and, and this is what really came out more clear to me this week and even preparing for this message, that you know, if you're going to hear me give a three to five minute, here's the testimony of what God's done in my life, every single one of those points is going to be from one of these dark times that I walked through. Those are the sweetest things. The first things that come to my mind are what God did in my life in those dark times of life, those dry times, those desert times, whatever we want to call it. The wall of darkness is not everyday trials. It's not just the, the everyday frustrations we go through. It's not the annoying boss. It's not the, it's not the, the conflict between parents and adolescent kids, although maybe sometimes that might trigger it. It's not the, it's not the normal things of life. It's, it's the things that, that we know we're at the wall because we have these deep-seated questions, deep-seated questions about ourselves. Am I ever going to be good enough? Am I ever going to be able to do this? Am I ever going to understand? Am I ever going to be free of this? They're, they're these deep-seated identity questions, and they're these deep questions about God and, and about our fears and about about are we going to fail and is God going to bring success and where is God's goodness and all these things. They're, they're the big questions. They're the questions like John the Baptist faced when he was in prison towards the end of his life and he sends people to Jesus and says, are you the Christ or is there another? This is the same John who saw the Spirit descend on Jesus and declared who Jesus was and heard God speak to him saying at the end of his life, this is a deep identity question. Have I fulfilled my purpose? Have I been faithful to God or not? type of a question. Saul faces this question in the Old Testament a number of times. 
this, this, this same wall of darkness. One of the, one of the times he's, he's facing this army and his, uh, that's overwhelming and his men are, his men are fleeing and he's, he's, he's struggling with this people-pleasing and, and God's asking him to wait for him to show up, to just trust him in the darkness, to come through at the right time in the right place. And Saul fails that test. Abraham it's, uh, this, this wall of darkness can sometimes be long. It's Abraham waiting 25 years for a son in his old age when God promised him he would have one. It's, it's Job losing all he had in one day. It's, it's Paul in prison uh, wrestling with the question, am I going to live or die? Do I have more to do or not? Is God done with me on earth yet or not? Do I have more to do? It's the disciples with, with Jesus during the last week when he's talking crazy about dying and then everything seems so good. And, and then with the Gethsemane and the crucifixion. And, and for Peter, it even lasted longer. I mean, when he, when he rose from the dead, so most of the disciples were going, yeah, it's great, it's awesome. But Peter's going, I failed you. And it wasn't until he was restored that he's wrestling with this, this dark wall that keeps him distant from God. And, and at least he stayed. Judas hit the wall in betraying him. And he ran pell-mell into suicide and disillusion and pain and destruction of his life. And the invitation today through this message is if you've faced the wall, if you've, if you've faced the darkness in the past, if you've faced the dry time in the past and you've run away from it or you've just avoided it, God's inviting you to just come and face it. Just to stand and say, God, will you bring me through this? And, and some of you are sitting here going, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never faced that. Great. I'm so glad we've got some like that. I'm sure we have some like that. And you know what? All I can say is you will face it if you pursue God and take some notes. Hopefully you'll face it better than I did, especially early on. So today we're going to look at this uh, uh, primarily from the standpoint of the benefits of when we get on the other side of the wall. Because the reality is, when somebody asks the question, how do I get through the wall? The reality is we get through the wall by simply facing it and waiting on God. It's just this mystery. We don't know when he's going to take it through. We don't know how long it's going to last. My walls have lasted anywhere from a couple days to four years in my life. And you just stand there and allow God to do his work. You can't predict his timing. You can only trust. You can only wait. You can only persevere. You can only remain faithful, not perfect, but faithful. We will talk about key habits over the next few weeks that will help you face that wall better. But today, just the benefits of going through that. So the first benefit, God wants to bring to us in these great dark times of our life this greater level of owning and awareness of our brokenness and our complete need for God, thereby deepening our surrender and our trust of him. He so much wants us to trust him with everything we have and everything we are. And this exhibits itself, what he confronts in this a lot of times is, is two things. He, he confronts first the, the judging that we have of ourselves and of others. Karl Barth wrote this amazing statement. He's a, he's a theologian. He said, the, the root and origin of sin is the arrogance in which man wants to be his own and his neighbor's judge. And I would add to that the arrogance of which we want to be God's judge and define what is right, what is true, what is loving, and what is not in our own words. 
You see, judging is everywhere. And we could, we could just be really surfacey and talk about the fact that we all know that people judge people on the clothing and they judge people on education and the way they present themselves and, and what they own and what they do and how they act and how they speak. And we could, we could look at their lifestyle and all that stuff. But, but judging is also everywhere around us in terms of the gossip. Judging is what, what drives gossip, the gossip magazines, the things of the gossip TV shows that we look at. It, it, drives the, it drives us in the Christian church to say things like, oh, I can't believe that person is a Christian if they did this. Or, or it drives us to, to say things like, uh, oh, this place is dead because of the music. Or this place is just a performance because of the music. And it's funny that you can have two people say the same thing about the same service depending on their likes and dislikes. You see, until we've gone through these walls, we just really remain shallow in our Christianity and in our faith. And God wants us to go deep. Jesus' greatest words are some of the first he ever taught. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew 5, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this term poor in spirit is this idea of just broken, abject poverty. So aware that we are so completely helpless that about all we can do is raise our hand and say, I need help. It's so desperate that we have no concern of even judging ourselves against other people. A person in this, this desperation of state would never say, oh, at, least, at least I used to have a job that made some money as opposed to this bum over here begging who never had a job. Or it would never say, oh, I can't believe the way you look at me when you give me that money. It's so offensive because there's just such brokenness there, which is the second part of this whole thing of, of, of coming to this place, which is the idea that we're not easily offended. If we're at this level of brokenness, this level of poorness of spirit in us, it's because we've so looked deeply at ourselves and wrestled with who we are before God in such a real way that we've given up defending ourselves. Somebody comes and criticizes you when you're in this state and you just look at them and say, oh, if you only knew how bad I really was. And it's not a demeaning thing. It's just a wrestling with, a settling with through deep reflection of how broken we really are and how much we need God and how perfect his love for us is and have settled that issue that one day we know and trust, no matter how broken we are, that he will redeem us fully. Second, uh, going through this wall of darkness leaves us with a greater appreciation and, mis- uh, and, and peace with mystery. You see, I think our struggle in relationship with God and with each other oftentimes centers around control. Now, that's easy to say, but, but think about it this way. God is knowable. The Bible teaches that. We can know him. We can experience him. We can have a personal relationship with him. And yet he's wholly unknowable. He's wholly other. He's wholly infinite and great beyond anything we can imagine. He's not an object, and yet so often we treat him as an object by defining him with our clear ideas, saying God is always this and always this, and therefore he will always act this way. And we make these deals with God and say, if I will do this, then God, you will do that, right? Because if God's good, then everything that doesn't feel good must not be of God. And we make all these simplistic arguments, which there's truth in them, 
But really, isn't our heart motive a lot of times when we make those arguments to give us a sense of control, to give us a sense that I can predict this. Everything is going to be okay instead of just being at this place of complete trust, saying, I know God is good, but I don't always know what good looks like. I know God is loving and patient and kind, but I don't always know what that looks like. You know, Paul, this star of Christian history, this the equivalent of Harvard-educated, great theologian, greatest leader of all, in one of all of history, says this about himself at the end of his life. He says, I'm the worst of all sinners. And you see, my reaction to that most of my life, and maybe your reaction is the same, has been, oh, that's just Paul saying the right thing. He's certainly not the worst of all sinners. I mean, look at, the, look at the Roman emperor. Look at a bunch of other people. There's certainly people worth it. We just think that's the religious right thing to say, except that Paul's been through the wall a number of times. And he's not saying this because it's the religious right thing to do. He's saying this because he sees how desperately he needs God. He knows how desperately he has sinned and could sin if he would allow himself to. And he also knows that God loves him right where he's at and has promised to grow him, to transform him, to lead him in paths of goodness. And it gives him strength. Second, going through the wall of darkness leaves us with a greater... I'm sorry. I'm back over in the wrong place, aren't I? Didn't I already do that point? Thank you. Sorry. Okay. Um, Let's skip to the third point. How about we do that? I think we've talked about that enough. Third, we grow in contentment and peace that is exhibited in our ability to truly wait for God. Psalm 27, 14 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 130 says something similar. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word... I put my hope in his word that he says he's going to be good, in his word that says he's going to lead me through this, in his word that says he's going to redeem me and he's got a good plan for me. He says that gives me the ability to wait and so my soul waits for the Lord. This is a struggle to wait. It's such a difficult thing to wait. I remember years ago a person spoke prophetically over me in a way that was really true. I knew it was true. It resonated with me. And, and the, person, the person looked at me and said, uh, God's given me a picture. And he says, uh, he says you've been a wild stallion that God has had to bridle with a metal bit. And he wants to bridle you with something more gentle. And there was a compliment and a rebuke in that, wasn't there, for me. You see... Waiting is hard. If you're a driven person, waiting makes you feel lazy. Waiting makes you feel irresponsible. It makes you feel indecisive. And when you get in these walls of darkness, you go, I should just be able to do something to solve this. I should just be able to do something to get out of this. And so often we just fight it instead of facing it and waiting on God. Abraham waited 11 years, and he got frustrated, took it into his own hands, and had Ishmael. Moses took it, as, took it in his own hands instead of waiting, and he, and he committed murder, and so his wall took 40 more years for him to get through. 
David's wall, fleeing after the promise to become king, fleeing for years, isolated, marginalized, allowing God to strip away wrong motives, to develop a deep trust in him by facing the darkness, not knowing when God would fulfill the promise, not knowing when God would make life easier, and being persecuted, even attempted to be the people attempting to kill him. Jesus, in the wilderness temptations, faced it, and Gethsemane and the cross faced it. God's work at the wall is to teach us to completely trust him and to allow him to lead us through any and all situations, whether those situations are green pastures or whether those situations are dangerous minefields. He wants to know that we will trust him, to rely on him to lead, so that we can, like Paul, say, I have learned the secret of being content. I can wait. I can just be here in this moment in any and every situation and trust God. Living life with peace and contentment that allows us to rest and wait and trust God to be good. Finally, facing the wall of darkness and going through it gives us this great, this sense of greater detachment. Now, this is a weird word, and I've got an even more weird, enigmatic scripture passage that we're going to read, and it's always, a lot of times, it's been confusing to me. But let's look at 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine through 31. It says this. It says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, and those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. So that's just what all the wives want to hear. Their men taking that to heart. Live as though you're not married, right? But Paul is, in, I mean, elsewhere Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving your life up for him, and, and vice versa to the women, for, to the husband. And he, in another place he says, Don't, go to the extent of not even withholding sex for a, up to more than a short time period while you are devoting yourself to God because he wants us to be intimate. He wants us to have great marriages. He wants us to have great relationships. He doesn't want us to neglect. He doesn't want us to have this emotional detachment. This scripture makes sense from this standpoint. Have you ever thought about all your definitions of success? The things that drive you to pursue love and people-pleasing in others, the, the happiness, aren't they all tied to people and things? Aren't the anchors in our life, the things that we look for to define us, attached to imperfect and non-permanent when we attach them to other people? When we go through life thinking, I, I don't or I can't feel good unless my spouse loves me, or how, how, it's not easy to feel good or I can't feel good about myself when there's conflict between us. Or, or maybe it's, it's our definition of success and is attached to things and we're driven to supply for our family what we think is adequate. And that definition of adequate is different for all of us and includes different things for all of us, and, and we become attached to those things, those definitions. You see, I love my family. I love home, our home. I love the sense of purpose my job gives me. I love the comforts I have in life. I love the special privileges we give ourselves. 
but I rarely realize how attached I am to those things defining me and who I am. And when we face this wall of darkness, God wants us to detach us from those things that define us and attach ourselves to him, the complete, the perfect, so that we can be in a place where, yeah, maybe I could go back to the point where and live very contented and very happily buying 50-pound bags of rice every month and using rice as filler and all the food just to make the grocery budget stretch. Or, or maybe I could go back and I could be content and I could even be happy driving the, driving the vehicle I remember I had one time where the rust was so bad you could see the pavement through the floorboards, you know? Or maybe, maybe I, you know, if I fail... Would it affect my sense of worth? If I get fired from my job, would it affect my sense of worth? You see, God, through these dark times, is trying to give us an anchor much stronger than those things we attach our worth and our identity and our success and our sense of purpose to. And so he's trying to take the masks off and help us to see ourselves for who we are when we look in the mirror in those dark times. We can't see anything else but ourselves in the mirror. Am I free to follow and live in the contentment of plenty and want in family and possessions and job success and affirmations. In your marriages, Paul's really telling us he wants us to have this level of security that we can remain and stand strong and humble and tender in the midst of conflict. And we all know that half the conflict in our marriage ends up being exacerbated because we all are defensive because we're touching an attachment we have that defines us and we start to argue and we blow up. Isn't it true? He wants us to be in this place of darkness where we deeply reflect on our own stuff and learn to be loved by him and therefore learn to love others in the same way. To have the freedom, the freedom to accept ourselves and love ourselves and free to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly without any need to blame or condemn or even demand that it's right when somebody else talks to us. Peter, Peter Scazzaro says this. He says, Detachment is the great seeker of, secret of interior peace. Along the way in this journey with Christ, we get attached to literally, attached to or literally nailed to behaviors, habits, things, and people in an unhealthy way. And facing and going through the darkness forces us to look inward, to wrestle before God with who we are and how much we really will trust him. The wall of darkness, more than anything else, cuts off our attachments to who we think we ought to be and who we falsely think we are. Layers of our counterfeit self are shed and something truer that as Christ in and through us slowly emerges. If those who are serving communion and are willing to pray for people today could come and the people who are coming to pray, if you can receive communion and be ready by the time we do it for everybody else. But one question, we could summarize the one question of this wall of darkness for each of us, this desert place for each of us. And it comes out, I think, maybe best in, in the Lord's Prayer. If you know the Lord's Prayer, it's the place where Jesus asked his disciple, or the disciples asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray? And we've made this and a prayer that we've said, and if you've been in church, would you just say it with me? It just goes like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And let's stop there for a second. Did you hear that? God's goal, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's goal is to restore you to the perfection of heaven that he originally intended for you. The good things he wants to bring you. And that process in this prayer begins now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. Amazing thing about celebrating communion is, is Jesus leads us by example in following his own teaching on prayer. When he comes to the Gethsemane, he practices what he teaches. And, he, and he, in Gethsemane, we see him praying. And he says, Father, if this wall of darkness, if this, if this dark night of the soul, if this desert, if this intense situation I'm in where it doesn't seem like you're anywhere around and I don't know how to get through it, or if I can get through it. He says, if this can be taken away from me, please do so. But then he faces the wall head on with this critical statement that God tests all of us deeply in in these places of darkness. Jesus says, yet not my will, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus, who for the joy set before him, invites us to find joy. For the joy set before him, he faced a wall of darkness, and he says, be like me. Face your walls, because I will refine you in them. If you're here and you've faced a wall in the past and you've run from it, maybe you even left church over it in the past, but you're back, I want to invite you to return to that wall and to face it and be there with God. Trust him and pray the prayer, not my will, but thine be done. His forgiveness is complete. That's what we get to celebrate in communion. So as you come for communion in a moment, I want you to celebrate that. Say, God, not my will, but thine be done. Yours be done in my life. And thank you for accepting me, loving me, that I can trust you, that you've done what you're asking me to do. You're not asking me to do something you haven't done. And if, if you're here and you're actually in that place right now where you just, you just, you're trying to hear God, you, you, try, to, you try to read the Bible and it's just, it's just dead to you. you. You try to pray and it just feels like it's bouncing and you're not hearing anything. You just feel like you're hearing your own echo in your head and there's nothing else. You're not sensing God and you're struggling with questions of your faith. It's so easy to put on a religious face and never tell anyone you're going through. Sometimes not even tell God. Sometimes we avoid the feelings and we come and worship. We don't even tell God we're going through it. I want to invite you to come and do two steps if you're in that place right now today. I want you to take communion as just a declaration of your trust in the one who did what he's asking you to do, facing that wall, going through that wall, staying engaged in that wall, trusting that he's got good on the other side and he's going to bring you through. But I also want to invite you as you take communion, you'll step over and there'll be either somebody here or there'll be some people on the sides here. Grab your communion and just take it and then walk over to them and say, I'm at the wall. You don't have to tell any details. But just let somebody else pray for you to experience God's presence and help break through that wall with you. Don't do it alone. Let somebody pray for you. Would you do that? Let's, um, let's do this. As we come for communion, if you can come through these aisles here down, and then if you're on the outside, you know, go that way. If you're in the middle, kind of go this way, back around.
Um, but as we prepare, let's do this. Let's just pray together the Lord's Prayer again as our dedication to Him and our statement of this is why we're going to take communion, because we trust you in this. Our Father, pray with me, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Come now and take communion, praying the prayer, not my will, but yours be done.